A reading from the prophet Joel, the third chapter, beginning with the twelfth verse. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, Sanctify a, pa a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the aged. Gather the children, even infants, at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her canopy. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your heritage a mockery, a byword among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, Where is their God? In a reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Being Ash Wednesday means it's almost been a year <laughs> since all of this COVID stuff began. In the last two or three weeks, I have been reading a collection of Advent sermons by the Reverend, Reverend Fleming Rutledge, who is an Episcopalian, but a fiery Episcopalian. I want to share with you some things that come from two of those sermons because as I read them, it occurred to me that they might be helpful for us as we come here to reflect on our mortality, to repent of our sin and prepare for the season of Lent. And that it might be helpful for us to ponder a question that she asks, which is, how shall we love the dreaded day of judgment. This is the introduction to that sermon. My family, like most families, loves to tell and retell stories. One of our most beloved stories concerns some favorite New England cousins some years ago whose daughter was to be married. She'd been raised as an Episcopalian and wanted the Episcopal service, but her grandfather 
who was a prominent minister in a congregational church, was asked to conduct the ceremony. My cousin and her grandfather sat down together to go over the service from the 1928 Episcopal prayer book. Now you need to understand that this grandfather was a congregationalist of the theologically liberal Harvard variety who made it a point of honor to distinguish himself from his Puritan ancestors. He and his granddaughter began to read through the traditional Anglican marriage service and they quickly got to the place where the minister is supposed to say, I require and charge you both as ye will answer at the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. Well, said the grandfather, you certainly don't want to use that. We'll just leave that part out. No, Grandpa, exclaimed the bride-to-be, I love the dreadful day of judgment. And so she asked the question, how shall we love the dreadful day of judgment? In the sermon just after this one in this book, it's entitled, The Great But. She points out that the word judgmental didn't even appear in the Oxford English Dictionary until the 20th century. Did you know that? I didn't know that. She says that our modern sensibilities have led us to create an idol of a God who never judges anyone or anything. We have created a God, she says, who accepts everyone just as they are and never says anything against us because that would be judgmental. Fleming goes on to say that the real theological problem here is that we've lost sight of the fact that an act of judgment may also be an act of liberation. And she's right. And then she says this, God will save us from the judgment, but He will not save us without judgment. God being who He is, He cannot allow evil to exist forever. Something has to be done about the rule of sin and death in the world that God made. The world that God still loves in spite of everything. The secret of being a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, she says, is that we know that He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. And that we will be saved ourselves by the one who has loved us to the last breath of his own life. In the first and second chapters of the book of the Bible known as Genesis, you can read the story of the genesis of all things. Genesis means beginnings. So the book and truly all of Scripture begins with the words, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There, in beginnings, we read that God created our first ancestors, forming Adam from the dust of the earth. His name simply means man or human if you're being inclusive. In the Hebrew, Adam's name is actually the word Adam, which sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for earth or ground, which is Adamah. 
The Adam was formed from the dust of the Adamah. He was a man formed of the dust of the ground, and God breathed into that dust of the ground, and the Adam was made fully alive. Do you hear those two words? Fully alive. I wonder when it was the when was the last time a human being felt fully alive? Then God created Eve out of Adam. He put them in a garden God had planted in the east in Eden. And the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings tells us that everything was, what was the word? Anybody remember? Anybody want to shout it to the microphone? Good. But also very good. Very good. I fancy myself an observer of humanity. I like to watch people, especially at the mall. I watch what extent of the news that I can before I feel sick over the present condition of humanity, which doesn't seem to me to be fully alive. I watch reckless killings, murderous governments, power-hungry politicians masquerading as servants of the people, clergy taking advantage of those they're charged to serve, parents abandoning their children by just walking away from them or refusing to provide them with loving discipline. I watch and I see a resurgence of mistrust and hatred that is grievous to my soul. Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God saw that everything God had made, including us, including us, and it was what? Very good. Very good. It seems to me that you don't have to have a trained eye. You don't have to be a professor of anthropology or a psychotherapist to see that something has gone decidedly wrong with humanity. I must confess I see extraordinary little in us that would allow me to cough up the proclamation human beings are very good. I'm being all judgy, aren't I? (laughs) Judgy. Hate that word. The object of the first commandment of humanism, the new secularism that's sweeping across the world, is to defeat judgmentalism. Thou shalt not judge me has become its first commandment. This offense at judgment has bled over even into the preaching and teaching of churches. And Fleming Rutledge gave two examples. She said, A student in one of my classes bravely chose to preach about judgment even though one of her Christian friends scolded her for it. Why do you want to focus on all that sin and judgment, she asked her. And then she says, last year, a well-known Canadian biblical scholar and his wife were visiting my husband and me. We took them to one of our local Episcopal churches. The gospel lesson was one of Jesus' teachings that prominently featured judgment. The visiting theologian and his wife were, shall we say, appalled. Well, excuse me, the prominently featured judgment. I just skipped ahead. This is why I don't like using notes. The preacher, who was a recent graduate 
of a distinguished American theological college that shall remain nameless, she says, announced that he would not preach on the gospel that morning because we don't believe in a God of judgment. Can you imagine that? A pastor of a Christian church refusing to preach on the words of Jesus and justifying it by saying, because we don't believe in a God of judgment. She says that she and the theologian were appalled and she wanted to crawl under a pew. Modern people are seemingly okay with judging others. I see no shortage of that. Today, a conservative talk show host died and people came out of the woodwork on Twitter to dance on his grave being judgmental. Every day I see satire pieces attacking the new president. He's only been in office for a few days. People being judgmental. We don't mind being judgmental about someone else, but oh, don't you go judging me. Then we become offended. Thou shalt not judge me. All I can say is that it seems plain to me that the children of Adam and Eve are very much in need of judgment. How did we go from very good to whatever level of hell we are living in right now? What could possibly explain that? How did we go from very good to the festering pus that we are now? In, Genesis, in chapter 3 of Genesis... Sin reared its ugly head. I'll just briefly tell you that story. There was a garden and God placed Adam in it with his wife. And he told them, you can eat anything here you want, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I've told you all many times, it didn't say tree of knowledge. It doesn't mean knowledge is bad. What God told them was, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the story goes that a serpent came and whispered into Eve's ear and said, Hey, what did God say? She said, Oh, don't eat the tree or we'll die. And the serpent says, Oh, you won't really die. All that will happen is you'll be like God. And Eve heard those words and she realized that there was lack in her. And pride crept up. And you know what goes before a fall? And so humanity fell. And sin came into the world. And God's right judgment followed because Eve took the fruit and ate it and then gave it to her husband who was right there with her. To all my Baptist preacher friends who like to blame the woman. God's right judgment then followed. God had warned Adam and Eve not to preserve God's place of ego or sense of self, but to preserve Adam and Eve in a state of being what? Very good. We're catching on. <laughs> very good. To preserve them in the state of being very good. And so, they disobeyed and sin came into the world and they fell into something that they were not supposed to be, which is less than very good. 
And so the Apostle Paul taught us in Romans 5.12, as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Not just because we inherit the sin of Adam, but because all of us sin. I heard someone tell me one time, my baby don't sin. I'm like, well, you have a miracle on your hands because every child I have ever seen was sinful. The way of the tree to do the tree of life was blocked off as God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden as judgment. God was being all judgy. Can you believe that? And the way was blocked as God set an angel at the entrance with a fiery sword. I call that pretty blocked. What about y'all? No getting in there. Now the humanist and possibly even many modern Christians will contend that all this Adam, Eve, tree of life, and Eden fluff is the stuff of unicorns, pixie dust, and fairy tales. Well, I'll say this. Even if it is a story meant just to communicate a moral, it seems to do a damn fine job of communicating that we are mired in the muck of sin and death by the choice of our own will and our own desire. We brought that judgment on ourselves. To Adam, God said, because you. As he deflected and said, no, 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 that woman you gave me. God said to him, because you. And judgment was rendered. The man and the woman cut off from the tree of life. And so judgment came to us at the edge of a garden, and we are cut off from accessing the tree of life, lest we might eat from it and live forever, as we had become capable not only of good, but also of evil. This is a grace, this judgment of death, in some sense, because it liberates us from being as bad as we could be. Can you imagine what humans, what destruction human beings could articulate upon the world if we did not die? Can you imagine what harm and hell we would create if left to our own devices, if there was no one to hold us accountable? I'm being all judgy again. Judgment comes again in the voices of the Hebrew prophets, those like Joel who we read tonight, who call us away from the objects of our fallen and broken desires and back to the living God who molded us with His own hands. They warn us of our desire to be self-destructive and self-directed toward our own destruction and call us to return instead to God, following the way that leads to life. If you don't believe what we're self-directed toward destruction, consider the amount of money that our own nation spends on the possibility that we might be able to kill others. What would happen if the whole world just decided at the same time, hey, what if we spent all this money on solving all our problems? We can't do that because we are less than very good. We are bound in the mire of muck and sin and death. We are enslaved to it. And so this prophet calls to the people of God and says, Quit! <laughs> 
if you could sum up the preaching of the prophets, it would quit being stupid. Stop following the way that leads to death. Repent. Don sackcloth. Heap ashes upon your heads. Turn away from serving sin and death. Do something smart for once and turn and follow the living God. Remember the face of our Father, they say. The prophet Joel cries out, The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who? Who can endure it? And then, many years later, judgment comes in the voice of the Son of God, who also deems that we need repentance, ransom, and deliverance so that we might serve life and the living God instead of our dead idols of money and power. And that preaching got him killed because we're that committed to our dead idols. And so we get mad at preachers when they point out the folly of our spending. And we call the bishop and say, move this jerk. Jesus, in one of the scariest passages of all of Scripture, warned us with these words. And I mean it. This is the scariest passage in all of Scripture to me. I tell you, he said, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. It scares me. Man, if y'all are behind me in the judgment, my slideshow is going to be long. It is undeniable. That judgment figured prominently in Jesus' preaching. And any preacher who would avoid it is not worthy to preach the gospel. In each of these voices, humanity is determined to be in need of two things. The judgment of God and the restoration that only a God who judges who truly knows and admits our brokenness, can give us. Would you trust your car to a mechanic who said, oh, it's not really that bad, just drive it. Why would you trust your soul to a God unwilling to judge and heal you? And so Joel cries out, yet even now, he says, yet even now, says the Lord, as bad as we are, as contemptible as we have come, as long and as hard as we have turned our backs on the way of life, Joel says to his people and to us, the Lord says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts. It means tear your hearts open before God because God sees all. You might as well flay it open. Rend your hearts. 
And Joel couples that call to self-examination and submittal to the judgment of Almighty God with these wonderful promises. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. We learn a good thing here. The judgment of God is not separate from the love of God. But it is rooted in God's love for us and for all that God has created. And the last thing I will say about my fellow clergy is that any preacher that pits the love of God against the justice of God is a heretic. The judgment of God is rooted in the love of God and is an expression of the love of a holy and righteous Father. Not that horrible Father you might have grown up with, but one who is perfect in every way. So Joel reminds the people who have come under the judgment of God that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There will be deliverance from wrath, even for us. The season of Lent is a time for self-examination, for sober reflection, for giving ourselves over to the judgment and healing that only our loving Creator can give us. It is a time of weighing our full life, body, soul, and spirit against who it is that we know God called and created us to be. People who reflect the glory of God. The glory of God's love and life into this broken world and into the lives of people who have forgotten that they were supposed to be very good. In this season... We are prepared to truly hear the story of how the Son of God took our sin upon Himself and put it to death on the cross. How God raised Him from the dead to vindicate Him and to defeat our greatest enemy. In this season, we can realize that we actually do need that judgment of God upon our sin. We need the cross. We need deliverance. How shall we love the dreaded day of judgment? It is only as we come to terms with our condition, with our guilt, and that we are truly able to cry out for mercy and gladly receive the grace that we are offered in Jesus Christ. Until we are in touch with the judgment of God, we cannot repent. But when we are aware of ourselves, we become more aware of the grace that's present in our lives, equipping us to repent. Because God not only calls us to repent, but empowers us to do so. And it's in realizing all this that we fully experience the gift that we are given. It has been my experience that sometimes it's when the expense and effort of a free gift are known that only then the gift can be fully appreciated and the giver rightly loved. And the one receiving truly know how much they are loved. 
If right now we were to compile a list of all the atrocities and evils that are ongoing in this world, I don't know that my heart could bear it. In my own lifetime, I have seen human beings do unholy and evil things to each other, all the while proclaiming that they were doing the right thing. If we were to compile a list of all the atrocities and evils that are going on right this night in the world, surely we would see that this world is in need of judgment and that a world without the wrath of God could only be hell. If humanity is truly left to do as it wills without impunity, without the threat of judgment, how can there be any hope at all? Having recited such a list of evils, witnessed at the time of the sermon, she wrote. Rutledge wrote these words. In such circumstances, we can understand that the judgment of God upon all evil is good, right, and necessary. I would add that this includes even the evils that we personally continue to flirt with even as we claim the name of Christ. So the Apostle Peter rightly reminds us the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. And it turns out in a strange ironic twist as we've learned tonight that this is actually good news. Because it means that our heart might be rended open and we truly might be able to confess and live. We truly can love the dreadful day of judgment. For it is also the glad day of salvation. So the Apostle Paulus taught us in 1 Thessalonians 5, God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with Him. Therefore encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. We need the judgment of God because it equips us to plead for mercy and avoid the wrath of God. And so Rutledge says, God will save us from the judgment, but He will not save us without judgment. Amen.